0: Hello and welcome to The Curator on Monaco 24 with me, Fernando Augusto Pacheco. Over the next 60 minutes, I'll be bringing you some of the very best interviews and reports from the past week. This week, we reviewed the big winner from our quality of life survey.
1: You really live well in Copenhagen on an everyday basis. Like you're in a big city, you feel that vibrant city flow and movement. But at the same time, the city feels very safe, actually quite easy and uncomplicated and very clean.
0: Plus, we speak with French director François Ozon.
2: Yes, it's a controversial topic, but the film is very human and very concrete. It's a special story. And I didn't want to make a political film saying it's good or bad. I didn't have an opinion before.
0: All that and much more in the next hour, here on The Curator, with me, Fernando Augusto Pacheco. We'll start the show with Russia, which has responded to large-scale sanctions, with some small-scale ones. Russia has announced individual sanctions against a small and curious coterie of British politicians and a cohort of British journalists and pundits. Among them, Mark Galliotti, analyst, author, and a regular voice on Monaco 24. Galliotti tells us more.
3: I just simply was a, a keen-eyed journalist from, from Reuters who rang me up saying, I'm sorry to be the bearer of bad news, but...
4: And, and how do you feel about that? Uh, well, we're about to ask you something. Well, in fact, exactly that question, Mark. How do you feel about that? I mean, look,
3: rather sad, it has to be said. I mean, first of all, because, look, I, I, I mean, I'm a, I'm a great fan of Russia, the country, as opposed to the, the regime, and very much enjoyed traveling there back and forth, which I did quite a lot. And also because obviously in terms of my, my work, uh, it's one thing to be looking at the open source and talking to people on the phone, but there's nothing that beats just being able to poke around the shops and eavesdrop shamelessly on conversations on the train and that kind of thing to kind of help build up the, the texture and the nuance. And unfortunately, I suspect that's in part the point. Um, you know, As as Putin moves ahead with the, the North Koreanization of Russia, in some ways, he, he benefits from a vicious caricature of Russia, you know, Russia as Mordor, um, because that allows him to turn to his own population and want to say, look, you, you may not be that ha- happy with me. But look, you see, the West hates you.
4: This is I'm all you've got. So one obvious practical consequence of this is presumably that you can't go to Russia until such time as these sanctions might be lifted. Are there any others? I mean, I'm not really sure what else they they could do other than stop you visiting.
3: No, I don't know. I'm I'm sure such books of mine that are still in Russian libraries are being sort of dragged out as we speak. No, I mean, joking apart, this this is all it is. I mean, there is a large degree that this is performative. Um, I mean, of all the journalists, I think Sean Walker of The Guardian and I are about the only ones who actually travel there much. I mean, it includes, you know, Richard Sharp, Chairman of the BBC Board of Governors. Um, you know, I, I don't imagine that he often thinks, you know, what shall I do this weekend? I shall pop to Omsk. Um and, and likewise there is this this list of people associated with it with the defense complex. And, you know, I, I don't know, maybe the deputy chief of UK strategic command does actually sort of appreciate the thought of going hunting shooting and fishing in Vladivostok but i i doubt it so i mean i think a lot of this is just simply because there were various uh, russians who were sanctioned by the uk in in the traditionally sort of spiteful world of tit for tat some junior staffer somewhere in the foreign ministry was told up to told to come up with a list and this is what he came up with.
4: Hey, what do you make of the the somewhat curious inclusion on this list of three MPs from the Democratic Unionist Party? Is, is, has somebody lost something in the translation, or is that a typo, or have they actually done something to upset Moscow? Well,
3: look, I mean, I I have no particular idea of what what their sort of public utterances of late have been, but again, going going back to this point about. The degree to which really this is just simply uh, an an administrative exercise. Again, probably someone just quickly Googled, um, you know, British MP, Russia, uh, and and picked some who presumably had been saying some some sort of less than entirely fulsome positive things uh, about Moscow, and they thought, right, that'll do. Yeah, I mean, this is, I I I would love to feel that there was a kind of a star chamber of the great and the good the most sort of uh, adroit thinkers about Britain <laughs> who came up with this list and that somehow as a result, you know, Putin himself said, that Galliotti, he needs to be there. Um, but I, alas, don't think so.
4: I mean, has there been just finally any talk among you and your fellow sanctionees of some sort of supper club or a, a, a blazer with a coat of arms <laughs> on it or a, a tie or something? Um,
3: no, I mean, it, it has, has to be said not. there. There is a distinct lack of collegiality. I mean, we, we haven't even got a T-shirt.
0: And now we head to Austria, where animal rights activists are having a few days after the country's health minister said he would like to get rid of Vienna's famous horse-drawn carriages, known as fiaker. They constitute a big part of the Austrian capital's appeal and are beloved by tourists. So naturally, the city's 21 Fiaker businesses are not happy about it. Monaco's Alexei Korolyov reports.
5: Go anywhere in Vienna's city center and you'll smell, hear, and see them. The Fiaker open carriages pulled by sturdy draft horses. This is what gives Vienna its old world charm and considerable tourist revenue. But not everyone
6: is on board. My name is Girk Prinz, and I work for the Association Against Animal Factories since 2016. And I'm also the FIACA campaigner of this organization. Because a city is no place for horses, it's out of concrete, asphalt, there are a lot of cars, a lot of traffic, the exhaust fumes. It's also a very stressful environment. So. They are flight animals, so their natural response to stressors is just to run away. So they need to be heavily trained and heavily constrained. They use all this harnessing to subdue their natural behaviour. And also the natural behaviour would be to move along all the day, eat a little bit, move along. But they can't do it.
5: The debate over the FIACA has been going on for years. In 2016, Vienna Council passed a law that forbade them to work in high temperatures. And gave the horses some extra days off. But animal welfare groups say it's not enough and want the practice banned altogether. And now they have found an unlikely ally, Austria's health minister. In a recent interview with state broadcaster ORF, Johannes Rauch said the fiaker were out of step with the times. Nein, zunächst
6: stellt sich die Frage abseits von Hitze, ob der Einsatz von fiakern in a großstadt uh, überhaupt noch zeitgemäß ist.
5: Ich
7: halte das ein bisschen für Zeit gefallen. Da gibt es modernere Methoden.
5: Naturally the fiaker firms
8: didn't like that. He did not say this on the ground of um, animal welfare. And uh, this is actually what makes me really angry. Because if you if you take a look at the career of the minister, he obviously does not have any knowledge about um, horses, and so I think it's quite dangerous actually to give a statement to the public. Um, about the topic that he does not really know about.
5: Marco Poland is a certified coachman and the founder of Riding Dinner, a company that offers an onboard dining experience.
8: Of course, banning the horse carriages in Vienna would would be a fundamental cut into the culture, but um, the cultural argument is not enough because there are also very good points about health of the horses we have very strict laws and regulations that we have to go with so there are 324 carriage horses in vienna and they get checked by the public veterinarians uh, 2520 times can you talk more about what the fiat and this culture means to vienna and viennese culture well first of all the whole taxi business as we know it today was founded in vienna on the base of horse carriages. So in 1693, they gave the first licenses to horse carriages to transport people. And that was in Vienna? That was in Vienna. Nowadays, we have even streets that are named after fiacas. We have monuments, we have um, foods, coffees that are named um, after fiacas. So it's uh, still a huge part of the tradition.
5: So what's the alternative? And what would happen to the 1,200 people currently employed in the FIACA industry? The last word to activist Georg Prinz. Yeah,
6: during the COVID crisis, the, almost all of them also found other jobs. And of course, it's a social thing. And of course, if we brand it, we have the yeah, duty to, to find new jobs for them or to do a social fund to to do this. And they could, could do uh, electric horses. So even some FIACA businesses are doing this electric old timers. So this is our suggestion just remove the, the horse use an electric engine then it's the same tradition, it's the same carriage driver and they still can do their job.
5: For Monaco in Vienna, I'm Alexey Korolev.
0: You are listening to the curator of Monaco 24 with me, Fernando Augusto Pacheco. Monaco's quality of life survey is hot off the press and the Danish capital Copenhagen has once again been crowned winner. Monaco 24's Head of Radio, Tom Edwards, has been speaking to Anne Dorothea Brun-Aubrey, Deputy Ambassador at the Danish Embassy in London.
1: I think actually that in many ways it boils down to having a really good base of well-being. It sounds quite simple, but it brings quite a lot of happiness. Um, In my view, um, you really live well in Copenhagen on an everyday basis. Like, you're in a big city, you feel that vibrant city flow and movement, but at the same time the city feels very safe actually quite easy and uncomplicated and very clean
9: and i think one thing that's really striking if we look at you know this this uh, assessment of quality of life has happened of course after 2 years of the pandemic but in copenhagen it sort of feels in the best way like the coronavirus never happened the The residents seem to have reverted to normal without fuss there's There is this sense of of togetherness, that power of the collective that you 've alluded to already of collective shared happiness is that think, is, is that why they 've managed to navigate uh, the pandemic with such alacrity
1: yeah i think I think you're pointing to something very true here. I think that basically if you go down and you boil it down to what it is about it's very much about trust basically um I mean I think that things are, I mean, things are first of all considered to have one of the highest levels of trust in each other. Uh, there's like a high general sort of uh, societal trust, which is the ability to trust people you've never met before. Um, you sort of, just to give you an example, you'll see quite young children go to school on their own without their parents having to worry in traffic. You have a young mother actually leaving her baby outside a cafe believe it or not uh, this is actually happening and you'll see sort of ministers walk or even bike around from meeting to meeting from the government if the weather allows so this sort of this there's a there's a trust in each other and it extends to a trust in danish institutions like the government and health services um, and it gives a sense of safety uh, but it also gives a willing, willingness to sort of contribute and do your part um so so yeah i think that's very much about that people who hold power in these positions are actually trust tech act in the best interest of society and we saw that we saw that throughout the pandemic as well this uh, this belief in this we have a very very low level of corruption um so, so it's, it's an important part of our everyday living
9: Well, does it follow from that then that residents in Copenhagen and I guess across all of Denmark have uh, trust, therefore, in those institutions and in those officials to navigate the challenges that do lie ahead? Because whilst it is a very positive picture and Copenhagen comes out, number one, there are challenges ahead like, well, I I guess one of them is because it's such a great place people want to come and live there and that provides a challenge in terms of infrastructure and housing is there a collective trust and confidence that the institutions and the officials are fit for purpose in meeting that challenge
1: yeah i think i think we are sort of booming as you say and i think that there is definitely a challenge ahead of that where we have to keep developing um but i think um but i think Just to go back to also the city in itself and the sense of collective belonging and togetherness, you pointed out. I think that what you saw, interestingly enough, um, also sort of post-pandemic, you see a lot of sort of young families choosing to leave bigger cities around the world to have a more simple, easy and calm life in smaller towns. Um, And this is obviously also in many cases attached to economic cost of living aspects. But I think that on a more value based scale, I think that Copenhagen being vibrant and creative big city, uh, there's also this sort of smaller local community town business around it where you can actually, you know, have a less chaotic and complicated everyday life. So on a more sort of um, day to day scheme, I think that a lot of people choose to stay in Copenhagen even after. Uh, this pandemic that we've all been through in big cities um, and uh, there will definitely be a need to keep exploring possibilities for housing as you see.
9: Uh, Now, uh, Copenhagen's a great city for biking. One of the very few uh, negative points that I think my colleagues were able to find was um, a bit of a a preponderance of rude cyclists, apparently. (laughs) I don't know whether you would you challenge us on that one. And if you think that maybe there are one or two who could do with brushing up on their manners, what's the best way to get Danes to be a little bit more more civil when they're uh, on their bikes?
1: Oh, definitely I mean there are at least I would say there are, I can recognize what you're saying I think that there is definitely codes to learn when if you do take the challenge of going on your bike we're pretty kind of Viking style when we go on that bike and we we're pretty used to doing it every day so you know we bike to everything and we we have our way of going about it but when people that don't come from Copenhagen get on that bike they have to be very aware of sort of how to maneuver in it but I think it also shows how we actually make the city alive all the time we really use the city I mean to give you an Another example which is not biking you know we we really keep kind of pushing our limits as to how we can make the city alive and kicking we just had a royal run with our royal family in the front making a collective run through the city on a Saturday and you just kind of pass those historical buildings with your monarchy in the front it's kind of it seems quite you know quite amazing actually you can do that which goes back to the level of trust I guess I mentioned we have Copenhagen swim where you kind of do competitions in the waters And my husband just loves to do paddle himself through the city and sort of just enjoy it. So, you know, um, you can do all those things because the area seems clean and the city is such a green city, but you can also do it because you sort of trust that people will take care of each other. But I do acknowledge that there are codes on the on the biking lanes that are a bit aggressive
9: sometimes. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Great stuff. And, Dorothea, thanks for being such a good sport um, and thanks for coming on and telling us a little bit about why Copenhagen is so very livable. Thank you very much.
1: Great. We hope to keep it up for next year as well.
9: And there will be
0: plenty of quality of life topics in today's show. And for the new issue as well, I was tasked to choose a hundred songs for a special summary playlist. I'll be giving tasters of it in our global countdown. Here is the first part
4: time to welcome Fernando Augusto Pacheco to the studio with this week's global countdown. Uh, Fernando as I understand it, this is not the usual global countdown. Usually we look at the top five of a particular country, but this week is one of those weeks where you've decided to impose one of your themes upon proceedings.
0: It's a good theme, and by the way, you can blame it on me if you don't like the songs. You can really blame it on me. I blame you every
4: week. Well, in fairness, (laughs) I often blame the people who made the record, but I do also, blame you as a subsidiary culprit for bringing them to my attention.
0: So, basically, our new issue, the quality of life issue, is coming out today. And for the magazine, I, I chose a playlist of a hundred uh, summary tracks so you can listen and enjoy in the summer.
4: Listeners, I, 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 of listeners I cannot overstress this. We will only be doing five. Please, please stick for the this. next four weeks. For the That's, next
0: really, yes, oh, that'll only be 20. It's just a taster. Of course, you have to buy the magazine if you want to look at the full-on list, and perhaps go to Spotify as well. So,
4: so is is the idea within the context of the magazine that it, which is all about how to improve the quality of life that your playlist will hope kind of reduce it back to the average or? Absolutely, and I divided <laughs> the playlist in five moods as well. I think five that's the trick.
0: So we'll play one track for each mood. The first one one, track
4: for is, is one of the moods: despair,
0: <laughs> Fernando. Let, well, who knows? I okay. mean, uh, the first one. I think you might, perhaps, you might like this: is road trip. So this is songs that you can have a listen when you're driving to Okinawa or to Brighton or, or to whatever. Tell me a place in Australia you would like to drive.
4: Um, and, <laughs> anywhere that gets me away from what we're about to hear. Well, I suspect. I do. I do I do like a road trip so and and there is a specific short sort of music which i do think works well on road trips so so this this is going to be a country record isn't it (laughs)
0: of course not Um, this is actually japanese house music Uh, we'll have a listen now to shinishiro yokota with night drive let's have a listen
4: When does it start?
0: <laughs> well, I mean, you shouldn't say anything bad about Shinichi Yokota. He's a Japanese house music legend. And that's from his 2016 album, uh, Do It Again. And it's funny, I think that was his first full-on album. I mean, he's been going on since the 80s, but I think he never actually kind of wrote a whole album. There were a lot of singles here and there. Um, I quite like that song. I think it's quite, you know, gentle. I can totally imagine myself driving.
4: I, I mean, I can imagine it in the context of a car in that I can imagine asking, the taxi driver if he would mind turning that off. Uh, but we will move on to what it says here is apparel time, yes. which I do understand in that this segment of the briefing very often makes me wish I'd had a drink beforehand. So, <laughs> how, how do you see this fitting the summer mood?
0: This is a kind of a pre-dinner drink. So, you know, something you can dance to, but not too much. So, it's not really a club banger. But, you know, there's, there's yeah, it, some sims here and there. Is dancing before dinner a thing people do? <laughs> I think so. What, a bit, of, bit of a pre-dinner dance I, I think I actually prefer dancing before dinner because after dinner usually I usually like to sleep <laughs> so uh, why, the, w- why not during and this this artist actually I had the pleasure to go to Vienna to interview him for the magazine when we did our Austrian issue he's a, one of the most famous Austrian DJs and there's a very special guest Isn't in this that track a
4: hotly contested title
0: exactly well, <laughs> I'll tell you who is the special guest after this is Wolfram what is what is it like
1: What is it like inside your mind?
4: See, Fernando... I wanted to hear more of that. It's excellent. Well, well we, we, we differ uh, on that. Um, <laughs> I what The advice I would give to Wolfram, though, is that he has made an elementary error here, and this, this is me reaching back to my formative years as a rock journalist. A thing you should never do as an artist is release a record with a title that prompts a really cheap gag by way of the review under it. Like, he has called his record What Is It Like? And the review could very well read something like being trapped in a kind of which I I cannot escape I I am reminded of the artist whose names I do not recall but released a single called All The The Way Up which a colleague of mine reviewed with the sentence don't tempt me well, all I can say, what is it like? I like it very much. And so, you, you th- don't, that, that's the other angle you could, of course. You,
0: you don't want to know who's the special guest? It's Pamela Anderson, actually, uh, and that she's Pan. He just says featuring Pan. How, how very is that? Because she didn't want her name attached to it. Dave met in a in a party, and then he really liked her and said, "Hey, do you want to do the vocals for my new track? What is it like?" And I think Pamela loved the idea, and here she is. She's also a recording artist is 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 there nothing she can't do <laughs> exactly exactly
4: um, m- moving along too what is our what is our next mood that's a classic uh,
0: well the mood is afternoon sunbathing i think it's pretty it's pretty clear what i mean with that it's basically sunbathing in the afternoon in the summer okay. perfect easy lazy tracks perhaps hits that everybody knows and you know nothing too challenging but excellent at the same time.
4: But is there not a danger here, Fernando, that we are encouraging people to listen to music out loud in their gardens, which which is not something that people should ever do? I Basically th- because other people might be trying to read a book or something in their gardens.
0: I wouldn't mind if somebody plays our next track actually loud. I, I have a feeling you might not like this because, you know, it's a classic. It's in uh, butter commercials and everything. <laughs> so, uh, you know, but but let's have a listen. It's a classic. Actually, this song is not from then. It's a, it's a Cover uh, from the 1972 track. It's the Isley Brothers' Summer Breeze.
4: I have nothing at all against the Isley Brothers, or at least I didn't until I heard that. I wasn't i wasn't aware they covered it, though. But I, I, I do own and indeed listen to records by the Isley Brothers. Fantastic. I mean, look at
0: the lyrics blowing through the jasmine in my mind. I think it's a very beautiful lyric. And um, I love
4: jasmine as well have you ever had a jasmine plant in your garden? No? At, I, I, I have mean, one, I,
0: one at the moment, I, they're I, very
4: difficult actually. I, I know, I mean having having jasmine in your mind is the sort of thing for which you know you would seek professional help because it's just this crazed knotted, vast, sprawling ungovernable shambles of a thing it doesn't sound terribly relaxing to me at all they smell good though. They do that is, <laughs> that is, that is, that is true. So yeah six and one, half a dozen of the other um, where are we? I'm, time has stopped having any meaning. Which, which one are we up to? We're going to our
0: fourth mood of the day it's okay. uh, this one again it's one of my favorites it's Euro dance floor oh i can't so wait we can even be a little bit trashy we can dance this is funny this is uh, you know something Perhaps post dinner. Well, I don't mind pre or post dinner. Whatever your choice. What about during? Exactly. Perhaps during as well. I'm sure Eleni Ferreira, our next artist, should be dancing even during dinner. She's <laughs> she's an interesting one. You know, she's Albanian born, but she's Greek. But she represented Cyprus on Eurovision. And can, her, can she not make her mind up? And in her early career, apparently she was claiming she was Brazilian, but she's not. I, I think th- there was a problem of being from Albania, and she wanted to hide it a little bit. And she was saying, "Oh, I might be from uh, Brazil," and then she was from Mexico so she is from it's a, everywhere. By a clearly extremely confused young woman Exactly but I love this track Eleni Ferreira Caramella,
10: Caramella.
4: See, that sounds like the kind of record that the kind of person who plays music in their garden plays in their garden. <laughs> the, the, these people should be tasered. I, I, no, I love the song, you know. Perhaps other tracks, they should be tasered, but not
0: <laughs> uh, not this one. Uh, I actually, love I, I, I might even argue that during that track, she sounds like she is being tasered. And, but let's not forget that she was uh, second place, actually, at Eurovision 2018. Who, who, the, did,
4: who did she lose to?
0: She, well, she lost to a, a boring ballad as well, which I'm not if no. I'm going to say it here. You know, Fuego deserved to win that year for sure. We have one more mood actually, Okay, Andrew. and it is? Well, of course, you know, I'm from Brazil, right? So don't worry, the song's actually not Brazilian, but the mood is Brazilian Sunset. So it's, um, I think I wrote here... Is a late evening romance vibes, <laughs> if I may say
4: that. Does Brazil not have a single musician capable of furnishing late evening romance vibes? We do have, but you know, I
0: I, I decided to choose something French, and this is a very sweaty and beautiful track. <laughs> it's, it, it's it's by a band that doesn't exist anymore. It's called oh, Minuit. Minuit. The song's called Paris Tropical, and was remixed by Casey Lambest. Let's have a listen.
4: someone's just literally pressed the french pop button on their keyboard there
0: haven't they it's it's it, it might be a little bit cliche but it's wonderful and the lyrics are let's water the parisians they're all sweaty so let's it's, let's water the Parisians yeah, but, you know I, f- I think in a poetic sense I would in, say in a poet it's
4: very hot apparently it, in this song it does sound like a euphemism for something uh, Fernando just before you go a, a final plug there is 95 more tracks where that came from and where can people find it any
0: new stand actually
7: UBS has over 900 investment analysts from over 100 different countries Over 900 of the sharpest
2: minds and freshest thinkers in the world of finance today. To find out how we could help you, contact us at ubs.com.
0: You are with The Curator, our weekly highlight show here on Monaco 24. Of course, this week's show is all about quality of life. Here is a fun conversation between two of our beloved Monaco Daily Guests about what makes a city livable and exciting too.
4: The new issue of Monocle magazine is on a newsstand near you shortly and it contains our annual quality of life survey counting down the cities which Monocle considers most livable, agreeable and generally pleasant. To see if your hometown made the minor placings, you'll have to buy the issue but for the purposes of prompting discussion right now, I can reveal that Top Spot is occupied and for the second year running by Copenhagen. There's always next year Newport. Newport. Um, Copenhagen, first of all, uh, Barry, do it. Do we think of this as a, a plausible choice? It, it is, according to no less an authority than Monocle magazine, the best city in the well, world to live in. Well,
10: Boring is your favourite place to be, and <laughs> of course, it's Copenhagen. I'm sorry, Copenhagen. No ill feelings. But, You've but, just
4: ruined your chances with Copenhagen I know. And, and, and indeed probably with Monocle, but it's been Probably, <laughs> probably.
10: No, but but I I, I I think I can understand in a way why, because it's peaceful, because also it's a, it's it's clean. It's democratic in many ways. It's all of that stuff. Yes. Also, anxiety is not that great. So, for me to live in a country that is really, and I'm hoping England will go back to its senses, where I live, and we will have more democracy, more uh, trust in our our governors. There is there is anxiety in the world. People are anxious about so many things, and of course, the the the, the cost of living is probably. One of the huge the possibility of war in Europe, etc. etc. So for me, it, a place that I want to live will have classical music, ballet, and will have opera, and will have lovely flowers, <laughs> and no Putins, no Erdogans. Utopia. No.
4: I mean that <laughs> does, well, that you does know, sound you can in, dream. that does, in fairness, sound quite a lot like Copenhagen, and I'm sure they've got opera and ballet and violins and bicycles. Yes. They've
10: definitely got. It's bicycles. very sanitized. Yes. But, but, but their human rights record is a little bit now touch and go I mean, with the way they treat it, it, them. This is now. not
4: how you product place anything. This segment <laughs> has unraveled completely. Um, Somnath, what, what do you look for in, in a livable city?
3: I come from Calcutta,
4: so, <laughs> oh, wow. so some amount of uh, which is quiet. Not, which, which, <laughs> I, I can see why being raised in Kolkata would lead you to want to crave quiet. Uh, I, I once spent you... about two weeks there and, and had to lie down in a dark room for about a month afterwards. <laughs> there you go. So <laughs> I kind of mean that as a compliment.
5: <laughs> so, see, I'm, I'm from the global south and a vulgar Marxist. <laughs> what would I
11: want? I would
0: want enough food on the table, health care, free education, but I think they've got all that in Copenhagen yes, <laughs> as well. You know? so there you go. So, any city, you know, which, uh, which is fairly affluent as in Western Europe, I, I'm happy to be. And we had to Helsinki now, another city that did very well in our rankings. This is from The Urbanist this week. We speak to the designer behind a new climate focused development in the city.
7: Usually, cities look at best practices, they look at what other cities have done and just continue with successful recipes. However, today if you want to meet the uh, the big challenges and you know the goals that we cities we, we set to themselves for decarbonization, for instance, we cannot follow best practices anymore. We need to find a new way to innovate. And in this case for me it was interesting that the mayor decided to pick a, a procedure which is very similar to the X Prize in the US. You know, the X Prize Foundation or kind of some kind of moonshot competition where actually over 250 people participated from all over the world, 10 finalists, and then, uh, as I mentioned, the, the winners. And so the Hot Heart was one of the winners of, uh, of that competition as a way to decarbonize the city, in particular by finding a very cheap solution for energy storage, for heat storage, something we've been calling thermal batteries.
11: Ratti's solution for decarbonizing Helsinki's urban heating is to build hot water reservoirs for storing electricity. And these hot water reservoirs would also serve as warm forest islands that the locals could use for recreational purposes.
7: We can actually heat Helsinki and many other cities with renewable energies, but the problem with renewables, as we all know, is that they are intermittent. Sometimes we produce too much, sometimes we produce too little. And so how do we solve it? Well, we solve it with batteries. However, if you use traditional batteries, the cost is still very, very high. So in this case, because we're dealing with district heating, we thought about something like a floating hot water reservoir where actually electricity is turning into heat uh, when uh, the prices are not too high and then that's being used to heat up the city. And that's the infrastructure but on the top then we thought about how this could become an attraction for Helsinki and so our initial proposal is this kind of for tropical forests. Every time I've been here in Finland you know going to the forest is something very embedded in local culture and we said why don't we use just 0.5% of the heat in the reservoirs in order to change the climate and make it into again these four tropical forests from uh, Central America, South America, Africa and Asia, but more importantly as a center for learning about climate change and the infrastructure for decarbonizing our cities. As a Finn,
11: as a local, I have to say this sounds wonderful, both in terms of the climate change solution and then as somebody who might potentially be able to go and visit those places. But is this something that has ever been done before on this similar scale?
7: Yeah, well, the principle has been used before. For instance, even in Helsinki, there's a big uh, hot water reservoir that was uh, inaugurated last year, that's underground. But uh, like this floating, which is actually becomes much cheaper, this has never been done before on, on such a scale. But we are, we're very excited, you know, we've been working with uh, many teams of engineers, with multinational companies, you know, with Helen, with uh, ENEL, with Schneider Electric, with Danfoss. And it all seems to make sense, you know, if all is according to what we are seeing, on paper now the, you know the energy landscape is changing very quickly also because of what's happening with the war and increasing prices and so on. But you know if uh, all what we've seen on paper is confirmed, we should be able to heat Helsinki at 10 percent less than today in a totally carbon- free way. So to pay back the investment and everything else with the right rate of return in a way that's uh, carbon free.
11: Ratti believes that cities need to follow Helsinki's example and look for new solutions to decarbonize.
7: Usually cities, you know, when they want something, will uh, do an RFP and they will ask people, you know, they will look for people who've done the same thing already many, many, many times because that's a way to minimize risk. But, uh, of course, if we do this, we keep on repeating lessons from the past. We keep on locking the future into the past, so that's not going to take us to where we need to be, for instance, in terms of decarbonization. So I really believe the cities need to look at new ways of doing things. And, and this example from Helsinki to me was very interesting. I remember from phase one, out of the 250 people, we didn't have all the names, but people asking questions on the webinar were from the Atomic Energy Agency from China, you know, really from all over the world. And I think, you know, that's a way we can come together, share ideas and innovate faster than if you look just at the past. What are the
11: next steps? I mean, when will it be actually realized?
7: We've been really having a lot of meetings, both with uh, the city of Helsinki and also with uh, Helen, the utility company. And actually some of the meetings are going to happen in uh, this week. So the plan is to start with a smaller one, a smaller one where we can test everything. Also, you know, the people can get familiar with it. We can also look at the programming on the top of the floating island. So imagine like a smaller one is a test. And uh, I know that Helen is planning later this year to do a more detailed feasibility for the bigger one. So for the full solution.
11: Bearing in mind the, the city of Helsinki example of this urban heating competition, do you think in general we as societies, when we look for solutions to the climate crisis, do you think we have really unleashed the potential of architects and architecture in this, or can more be done?
7: Yeah, I th- certainly think that much more can be done. I think actually architecture today, if I had to define today's moment in architecture, I will use the word of a great architect and inventor from the past century, Buckminster Fuller. And you know, Buckminster Fuller in, once, you know, was talking about uh, utopia or oblivion. And I think that if, as architects, as designers, we keep on, you know, thinking about beautifying traditional objects and so on, you know, then it's going to be oblivion, you know, then we're going to become more and more irrelevant. But, you know, if, as designers, we really look at the key challenges of our time, and actually climate change is one of them, I think about segregation in our cities. And think about you know many of the other big challenges we, we are facing, then it can be like back mister Fuller would have said, utopia. So I really think that architecture has to redefine its perimeter, has to redefine its toolkit in order to really engage with the big problems of our time. <laughs>
0: You are listening to The Curator. And you know what, listeners? I love romantic comedies. I love the genre. And I hate people that are kind of sniffy about it. They are relevant. And that's why Scott Maslow wrote a book about it, From Hollywood, With Love. Let's have a listen to my chat with him.
12: My very formative moment for me, my mom's favorite movie is When Harry Met Sally. They actually, when they they had their anniversary, they did a little mock-up of the cover with my mom and dad as Harry and Sally. And I was pretty little at the time. (laughs) Uh, But that really stuck with me, and sure enough, that is, in fact, the first film that I cover in the book.
0: Yes! Oh! 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 Oh, God!
10: I'll have what she's having.
0: And, you know, I think it's great that you wrote this book, because, of course, romantic comedies have been popular uh, through decades, and we're going to talk even about the resurgence as well. But some people can be quite sniffy about it, right?
12: No, that's definitely true. I think there's always been a little bit of a snobbishness about romantic comedies. And, you know, I'm sorry to say it's because it's one of the few film genres targeted at women, sometimes written and directed by women, certainly more often than other genres. I think you can really track kind of a direct correlation between the critical snobbishness about, oh, this is light. This is fun. This is a chick flick. And these movies that made a huge impact in Hollywood, you know, on a, from a business standpoint, on a creative standpoint, uh, were beloved by audiences. So... I think it's overdue that they're getting a little more critical attention and praise. And I I think we're headed towards that era now.
0: Well, I think it's overdue as well. And to make this book must have been so much fun for you because you speak to a lot of people involved in romantic comedies, you know, from Drew Barrymore to Judy Greer. I I heard you're a big fan and I am as well. I mean, what would be romantic comedies without her, right?
12: Yeah, that was one of my favorites because I love that archetype of the best friend in (laughs) rom-coms it's so much fun and if anyone has done it you know better than anyone in the history of hollywood as far as i'm concerned and she was she was such a delightful interview because she had so much technical information about you know if if a soda company sponsors a movie she had to be the one to hold the soda can facing the camera but also deliver her dialogue (laughs) when you're not the star you have these kind of thankless jobs that are also really interesting but um but i think part of the reason she keeps getting those roles is because she does it so well, she can take this dialogue that's just exposition, you know, your brother is in Colorado, and she somehow makes it feel fun and real. It's really fun to talk to someone like that, who's been on that side of the job.
0: It's interesting, you mentioned at the beginning that you think your first experience more or less was when Harry met Sally. I think mine was uh, Julia Roberts in My Best Friend's Wedding, which I still think it's one of the greatest romantic comedies. And, And I'm glad it has its own chapter in your book as well.
12: It's an absolute favorite of mine, honestly. I I love it. (laughs) You know, when I was making the list of movies to go in the book, it it was really hard to whittle it down. I looked at, you know, 70 or 80 movies that I might want to cover before I finally was able to come to 16. Um, But that was one where when I revisited, it was like, I remembered that I liked this movie and it is better than I remembered. It is really smart. It's very risky for the time for Julia Roberts to take on a role where she doesn't get the guy, where... With Cameron Diaz in there, she's kind of inviting her box office rival to steal a guy from her in a rom-com. It's it's a really bold movie, and I think brilliantly executed.
4: Well. We're getting married. He was in love with me every day for nine years. Me! I can see why. Look, She has known him for what, like five seconds? I can't lose him, George. I'm a busy girl. I've got four days to break up a wedding and steal the bride's feather.
11: Oh <laughs> see me girl with the she, knows how to, she You know, knows I've
8: never had a sister. All I've heard is,
4: is Julianne this and Julianne that. Michael and I were a wrong fit right from the start. He said
1: that too.
0: You know, I want to talk about the resurgence, but why do you think there's been a little uh, decline? I mean, of course, I think you investigate that a little bit in the book, but tell us, uh, I think that the 2000s were a bit kind of, you know, there's been a f- few films here and there, but it was definitely not what it was in the 80s and 90s.
12: Yeah. I think a few things were happening at the same time. I think the most important part of it is that the Hollywood business itself was changing a little bit at the time. It's not so much to me the decline of romantic comedies as it's the decline of mid-budget movies, where Hollywood kind of switched to a business model where everything was either like a $300 million Spider-Man movie or a $10 million movie that might win Best Picture, and it's this really dark drama. And they just kind of lost room in the middle to make movies like rom-coms that have often been ignored. Critically, and other than there are exceptions like for Weddings and a Funeral or Silver Linings Playbook, but those tend to be the ones that are a little more serious and that center a white male perspective. The rom-coms that are more traditional that we think of that center a female perspective rarely get that kind of awards attention. And so I think rom-coms were sort of uniquely devalued by changes in the business model where it was like, well, we're not going to get awards from it, but we don't know if people are going to go to to movie theaters at least to make a billion dollars to see it. And I think that caused problems. And at the same time, I think there was a bit of a decline in quality. Mm-hmm. Like any film genre, part of what happened was they started to want to one-up themselves a little bit. You know, oh, this rom-com did this, so we need to go even crazier. And and when stars started sort of back away from doing the genre, you know, as as people like Julia Roberts and Meg Ryan looked in other directions and other stars, people like Emma Stone and Jennifer Lawrence made romantic comedies, but they, they didn't just make romantic comedies. They also made action movies or dramas or superhero movies. And so... I think all of those things came together to kind of hurt the genre at the time.
0: Do you see like today, you know, We've seen more slightly recent films like Crazy Rich Asians. You know, there's Fire Island as well, which just came out. I think I can say it's a romantic comedy, right? Definitely. Do you think this kind of uh, the diversity uh, thing is quite a good thing as well for romantic comedies? Because that's something that was definitely missing at the time. And I think that's how romantic comedies can progress in, in the next years to come, to be diverse and to have better scripts as well.
12: Yeah, I couldn't agree more. I think part of the reason that the genre lost touch with people like, like all of Hollywood, really, it's mm. you now, unfortunately, it's no secret that, you know, we're, we're in an era of Hollywood where things have been very monolithic for a long time. And a lot of the great rom-coms that I love that I cover in the book are centered on rich white people. They just are. Uh, that's that's how Hollywood worked. It was people people greenlighting movies kept lighting movies about the same kinds of people. Uh, and I think like anything in Hollywood, I think things are getting better and they're not as good as they should be. And it never should have been a problem in the first place. But but I'm hopeful that things are getting better. And I think you, you mentioned Crazy Rich Asians, which is the perfect example. You know, that was a movie that when they were shopping, that book was a huge hit. And when they were shopping it around, you know, there were people saying, oh, why can't the protagonist be a white woman, which is crazy. Like, that's clearly, clearly not the solution to bringing that to the big screen. But when they did it authentically, you know, when they got that's a majority Asian cast. They they got a, you know, people behind the, you know, producers and a director that really understood the material and they really they really did it right. And sure enough, you have this massive, you know, hundreds and hundreds of million dollar hit at a time when people are saying rom coms don't work anymore. Like clearly that's not true. A good rom com definitely works.
0: And from the Foreign Desk Explainer this week, Andrew Muller explains the UK government's plan to deport certain migrants to Rwanda, a very controversial decision.
4: In the context of recent weeks, flight from UK airport cancelled does not seem much of a headline. Indeed, such is the shambles that has beset British airports of late that you would more likely hear a yelped demand from some sweating editor to stop the presses if an aircraft departed on time. But one particular cancelled flight is newsworthy. On Tuesday night, a Boeing 767, operated by Spanish charter outfit Privilege Style, was supposed to take off from the Ministry of Defence Airfield at Boscombe Down, bound for Kigali. Aboard were to have been the first asylum seekers to be relocated from the UK to Rwanda. In the days before departure, the number of passengers was whittled down from 130 or so by legal challenges. By Tuesday evening, it was expected that only seven people would be making the trip. And then an intervention by the European Court of Human Rights grounded the plane entirely. The UK's Home Secretary, Priti Patel, has nevertheless insisted that this is not the end of the Rwanda escapade and that preparations for the next flight are afoot.
10: I want to make something absolutely clear today, Madam Deputy Speaker. The European Court of Human Rights did not rule that the policy or relocations were unlawful, but they prohibited the removal of three of those on last night's flight. Those prohibitions last for different time periods, but are not an absolute bar on their transfer to Rwanda. Anyone who's been ordered to be released by the courts will be tagged while we continue to progress their relocation.
4: The thing is basically this. The UK's government is vexed by recent arrivals of largest numbers of people making unauthorised arrival on Britain's shores by boat across the English Channel. This is, to establish first principles, a fair enough thing to be vexed by. More than 10,000 people have made the crossing so far this year, following at least 28,500 last year, and it is not entirely clear who all of them were, where they were from, or where they have gone, which, however liberal your views on immigration, is a sub-optimal state of affairs. There is also the basic humanitarian consideration of the risk these people are taking. Though most crossings are attempted when the channel is reasonably calm, it is the world's busiest shipping lane, navigated every day by 600 or so vessels, many of them enormous, and every one a potentially lethal hazard to a small inflatable craft of uncertain seaworthiness steered by a dubiously qualified skipper. The precise figure is unclear, but it is believed that more than 300 people have drowned attempting the crossing this century. Last November, 27 perished in a single incident. So everybody agrees that there is a problem, and even if a great many people vastly overestimate, grand scheme of things, how serious the problem is, the optics of it are terrible, especially for the UK's current government, elected as it was on thunderous promises of controlling the nation's borders, something the UK's current government could not manage, even when a pandemic gave it not merely an excuse, but an actual reason. A decisive policy to deal with the boats was called for. This UK government, as is its habit, instead chose a dramatic gesture. Rwanda, not noted as a haven for huddled masses yearning to breathe free and so forth, was paid 120 million quid with further payments to come based on numbers to take those who attempt to settle in the UK outside regular processes. One can only imagine the height to which this has arched the eyebrows of the 2,229 Rwandans who in 2020 alone applied for asylum in other countries, 17 of them in the UK. If the policy looks cruel and draconian, there are two reasons for that. One is that it is cruel and draconian. The other is that it is supposed to look cruel and draconian. And two crowds are being played to here. One is prospective migrants, who the government hopes will be deterred, and the other is the Conservative Party's core voter base, who the government hopes will enjoy this dismal spectacle.
10: Well, I think we haven't, we're getting too many people coming in, definitely. Um, And I think there's a fear as well that, you know, they say one day England won't be English people here. It could be all foreigners.
4: On both those scores, it might work, though it is almost certainly the case that the £500,000 that the grounded charter flight cost would do Britain vastly more good in the long run if divided as start-up seed capital among the next boatload to splash ashore on a Kentish beach. (laughs) But the depressing reality is that while the thwarting of the Rwanda plan, for the time being at least, may look like a humiliating defeat for the UK's government, this is a game which the UK's government cannot lose. If the plane had taken off, and if any subsequent plane does take off, the UK's government would be able to claim that they were taking bold action to protect the nation's borders. The grounding of this flight, and of any subsequent flights, will enable the UK's government to claim that they tried to take bold action to protect the nation's borders, but were prevented by latte-slurping lefty metropolitan lawyers and, more treacherously still, the European Court of Human Rights. The fact that the ECHR has little to do with the EU and is a body of the Council of Europe, of which the UK has been a member since its foundation in 1949, or that the European Convention on Human Rights was drafted substantially by British lawyer David Maxwell Fife, later a notably hardcore Conservative Home Secretary, at the encouragement of Winston Churchill, no introduction necessary, are not distinctions that any current Conservative politician or their media cheerleaders will hasten to point out. These are people who, on this and all other issues, want the fight, not the victory. The adjective European will do. For Monocle24, I'm Andrew Muller. Finally on the show,
0: I spoke in London with French director François Ozon. He was here to promote his new film, Everything Went Fine. Let's have a listen
10: papa
0: uh, francois François, a pleasure to welcome you to Monaco 24. Uh, François, let's start with the basics. Uh, this film is based on Emmanuel Benrhein, which is someone that you worked very closely to. Mm. What was, did you feel quite emotional to you in a way uh, to make this film?
2: Yes, it was. Uh, it was a big deal because Emmanuel died some years ago, and after her death, I decided to. To adapt her book about uh, her father and uh, it was a way for me to work again with her and to understand maybe much better what she lived with her father and maybe i understood better uh, what kind of daughter she was
4: and,
0: and again i have to say this film defied expectations i had a preconception how the film would look like but There's also a sense of humour to it as well, because
2: I think people that say, oh, it's an euthanasia film, that's too simplistic. (laughs) It's definitely not what it is, right? No, I think it's a film full of life, and the idea of the film was to be on the side of life, because the the lead character, the father, loves so much life, but he wants to die. That's the paradox, because he doesn't have the opportunity to live as he did before, and uh, that was all this paradox I wanted to... To, to show in the film. And each time there was some funny moments, it was important to have them in the film, especially because the, the father has a, a kind of black humor, a sense of humor, which is very special uh, with his daughter. So, so yes, it was the idea was to make a film about life more than about death.
0: And I think André de Soleil, he did such a fantastic job as well. And because the character, as I say, you know, he's not kind of this perfect guy. He, he can no, be a little bit not, not likable <laughs> at yeah. times as well. So that must be quite a, a difficult thing to portray. He could have come across even worse, but there was a nice balance in yeah. there.
2: I think the father is someone very selfish, but very clever and charming at the same time. And I love his kind of complex character, you know, they are not totally black or totally white, he's not always likeable. But that's something which is very uh, strong to explore for an actor and for me as a director. So we worked a lot with André Dussollier on the on the character and we had a very uh, precious uh, thing to help us to, to describe this character. It was the real tape. of Emmanuel with her father, because in the film, in the reality, uh, uh, the notary asked to Emmanuel to film her father saying, I want to die, to be, to have a, to have a a proof of his desire of dying. So we had this real tape and it was so so moving for us, for Andre and I to, to, to see it. We saw it together and after we used it to, to, to create this character
0: did you change much of the script uh, to add some some of your elements from the films from, from your films usually or not
2: i i made some research about the family because some elements were not in in the in the book and there are i had the feeling that there was some kind of uh, gaps I needed to fill, and uh, so I spoke a lot with Emmanuel's husband and with her sister, who is still alive. And they give me some uh, uh, clue elements which help me to to describe more the complexity of his family. For example, the Holocaust uh, background of the family, which was not in the book, and uh, the character of the mother, was not totally described, she didn't really exist in the book. And for me it was important to have her in, in in the film because she's an artist too. She's a sculptor and a great sculptor. And I was so surprised that Emmanuel never told me about her mother. So it was important to to put her in, in the film.
0: And how was it to work with Sophie Marceau? I mean you've worked with you know the past French actresses and but you never worked with her. That there must be quite a special one
2: as well, right? It was an honor to work with her because uh, she refused so many films. She refused me already many times <laughs> uh, some films, but this time she was totally involved in the story and she we are very happy to work together. I think Sophie is someone who started very young as an actress and I think I'm not sure she decided to become an actress. So it's complex for her sometimes to make film or not. And uh, this time she, she I think she she loved the story. She was very interested in Emmanuel Bernheim's life, and uh, and there, he had des échos dans sa propre vie.
10: And they, her, the Emmanuel Bernheim's life resonated with hers. Life. De toute façon,
11: c'est un a demandé. C'est un mauvais père. Mais adoré l'avoir comme ami. Alors, aide-le.
0: it's one thing interesting. I found I found that even uh, the character of André Dussollier. Did you use prosthetics? I mean, I don't know. It looked quite realistic, actually, when he after
2: he had a stroke. You know, what, what was the the effect there? We had some special effects, some makeup. You mm-hmm. know, yeah. Really three actually. three morning, two hours. We had a lot of, uh, of video of people uh, having a stroke, so it was not complex. But for him, he had to he had to to work with an orthophonist to have the, the the way of talking well, when you have these kind of things. And, uh, and he made a lot of uh, work, you know, to, but he's, he's very professional, so it was very easy.
0: That's all we've got time for this week's edition of The Curator. The show is produced by David Stevens and presented by me, Fernando Augusto Pacheco. Join us again next week. Thanks for listening.